We are glad you are here to celebrate the resurrected Christ with us. The early church had some really unique practices that I kind of wish we were still hanging on to. One of those was referred to as the love feast. They would get together for worship on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day. The early church switched worship from the Sabbath to Sunday to the Lord's Day. And after they would have this time of beautiful worship, they would take the Lord's Supper and then they would have a love feast where everybody brought food. And if you read in the original languages, you get really particular in it. You find out that every one of those love feasts had mashed potatoes and gravy at it. It's an amazing thing. Wish we were still doing that on a weekly basis. But they also had another unique practice for determining who was a believer in Jesus out in the community. We showed this to you a few years ago on Easter Sunday, but I really like this. It is the equivalent of gang colors, if you will. Here's the way it would work. Two believers would pass each other on the sidewalk. So I'm going to ask Deanie to come up here. We'll just show you what it looked like. One might be walking one direction, the other walking the opposite direction. When they got close to each other, they would say something like this. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And instantly we knew he was a believer. Isn't that a great practice? Just a great practice. That's the way they found one another in the midst of a deep society. And what a cool thing to make a declaration of the resurrected Christ. So let's try it together this morning. Are you ready? Christ is risen. That is a beautiful declaration. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, we are here because you are risen indeed. We are here this morning because of Easter in an empty tomb. We are here because you have changed our lives, transformed us. Lord, we are here to thank you, to worship you, to praise you, and to give you honor and glory. We are here, Lord, because without you, we would be nothing. But with you, we have the hope of heaven. Thank you for that. So Father, this morning as we make our way into your word, we're asking that you stretch our minds, that you stretch our hearts, and that you stretch our understanding so that we can live not just in a hope, but in assurance, knowing that someday we will see you face to face. And until that time, we can stand before you pure, righteous, and holy because of what you have done for us, not based on our own steam, but based on you. So Lord, I pray that that's the message we take with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been studying the resurrection all week long. I've seen things that I had not seen before. I have been exploring, diving deep into some ideas that center around the resurrection that I have never taken the time to get into. And man, it's been a great week in study. I wish we had enough time today for me to walk you through every bit of what I have been spending time with. But I promise you, if we tried it, we would be here for the next four or five days straight, which is a preacher's dream, but I'm guessing I would lose a few of you. So we've got to try to boil it down more than that. In order to do that, I want to take you to one of the most unique places that I was spending time this week. Don't know that I've ever been there putting together an Easter message, and so it may seem very strange to you as we get started. Hang with me as we go all the way through this. But open your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Job, of all places. Now, if you are not familiar with Job's story, let me walk you through just a few of the details. Job is going through a very difficult time. That time was allowed by God. That's hard for a lot of people to understand. But God allowed all of the challenges that he was facing. 
By the time we get into the second chapter, here's what we learn about Job. He has lost his business. He has lost all of his personal wealth. He has lost his home. He has lost his family. And he has lost his health. Things are not going well. God has moved boundaries around Job's life over and over and over again and given access to Satan to try to test Job's faith. In the second chapter of Job, his faith is strong. He actually makes an interesting statement there. It is very possibly, it's not a statement as much as a question, it is very possibly the oldest recorded question in all of history. Because you see, the book of Job, the Old Testament book of Job, predates everything else in recorded history. It is the oldest book known to mankind. It predates the book of Genesis. Even the writing of it predates the book of Genesis. So the questions that we find throughout the course of that book are the oldest questions in the world, yet they are still very common today. Like I said, by the time we get to the second chapter, we see Job offering some questions that aren't just rhetorical. They're actually good pointed questions that he is looking for answers for. In response to somebody else questioning him over how his faith could remain strong in the face of everything that he's dealing with, Job says this. This is in the 10th verse of chapter 2. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That's a pretty good question. Can we only accept the good things from God and not accept the evil things? If so, what is our faith? In essence, that's what Job is saying. What is our faith? If all we receive are the good things, but we can't accept the bad, we have nothing to stand on. Job's doing pretty good at this point. By the time we get to the seventh chapter of Job, his faith is starting to bruise a bit. There's some dents in it. He's struggling just a little bit, but he is struggling. By the time we get to the eighth chapter, he has a well-meaning friend, a good friend named Bildad, who comes alongside him and says, Job, All these things that you're going through are obviously attached to some sin in your life. You need to repent of that sin so that God could bless you again. By the ninth chapter, Job is listening to everything that Bildad has to say, but there are more questions than answers running through his mind. And listen to one of the questions that he offers. It's in the second verse. Truly, I know that it is so, speaking to Bildad, But how can a man be in the right before God? Interesting question. How can a man be in the right before God? Job saying, you want me to repent of my sin, and I believe I should, and there is certainly power in that. But is that going to change any of this? How can a man be in the right before God? Now, Bildad is strong in his argument, and for the next 16 chapters, he and Job, along with a couple of other people, will bat around this whole idea of repentance and how we get restored before God. But what really happens in the process of those 16 chapters is Job's dented faith, his bruised faith, begins to bleed over to Bildad just a little bit. And Bildad, in the 25th chapter of the book of Job, would say this, starting in verse 1. Then Bildad, the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? Now listen, verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? 
In the midst of all of their conversations, Job has said, we're talking about the creator of the universe. We are talking about the holiest. We are talking about the most pure. We are talking about God himself. And in my brokenness, in my sin, you're telling me that I can repent and stand before God and be right in standing before him. How can that happen? How can that happen? Bildad tries to answer the question until finally he asks the exact same one. How can a man be right before God? That question does not just predate the writing of the book of Genesis. That question is not just one of the oldest questions in all of recorded history. That question penetrates the hearts of people today on a regular basis. How can a man be right before God? How can I, knowing what I have done, knowing what my sin is and knowing how deep it has gone... How can I stand before God? How can I be right before Him? You ever been broken? Gutted? Torn down? Have you ever faced your own sin and recognized the separation that it has caused between you and God? Most people have. And you probably at some point in that brokenness have asked a question just like Job and just like Bildad. How can I change this? How can I be right before God? Well, the good news is that there is an answer to that question. We can look in all kinds of different places. We could try to find the answer in self-help books. We could try to find the answers through years and years and years of counseling and therapy. We could try to find the answer by seeking out some of our good friends. But unless they are directing you to the things of God and the Word of God, you're probably not going to find the right answer. Because you see, it exists in the Bible. And it's not found in the Old Testament, it's found in the New Testament. And I want to show it to you. So we're going to leave the book of Job now and go to the New Testament book of Romans. And I'm going to show you the answer to Job's question and very possibly your own. How can a man or a woman be right before a holy God? We're in the fourth chapter. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, does that make perfect sense to you? Some of you are thinking, what in the world did we just read? How many of you would say makes perfect sense? Shake your head yes. How many of you would say, I am completely confused? Shake your head yes. All right, good number of you are confused. And you should be, and here's why. You're not Jewish. That was written to the Jews. It would make perfect sense if you had grown up in a Hebrew home. But because you didn't, most everything that Paul just said will leave you scratching your head. But I don't want you to discount it. Because he is about to grab a whole new gear. Let's go back in to chapter 4, verse 18. In hope he believed, still speaking of Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now that's the good news. Here's exactly what Paul just did. He took a message that was geared to the Jews, and he tailored it to the Gentiles, to us. And he put us all together. And at the end of everything that he just said, he says that Jesus was raised up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. That word, justification, is the answer to Job's question. It is the answer to Bildad's question. It is the answer to that question that has run through the entire history of mankind. How can a man stand before a holy God? Because of justification. And it comes only, listen, it comes only through the resurrection. The empty tomb is the sign of justification. It is the hope. It is the glory of all of Christianity. And it is this beautiful gift given to us by God. Yet a number of people miss it. They come close, but they miss it. Let me illustrate that for you. If you've attended Libby Christian Church for a while, you probably know that my wife has a strong desire to visit Savannah, Georgia. She has had that desire since she was a a pretty young girl. She read the book Savannah when she was growing up, and the author of that book painted a picture of the geography around Savannah in such a way that Tina really wants to go there. She wants to see it, and she wants to experience it. Now, she told me that when we first started dating, and prior to her telling me that, I had gone to Savannah. My oldest friend in the world, a man named Scott, lives in Iowa today. He and I were roommates when we were in Bible college. We grew up together. We have known each other for the better part of 40 years now. Great friends. 
His sister had moved to Savannah when we were in Bible college. And like a lot of students during that time, we decided we needed a road trip. So we jumped in the car. We drove 18 hours from Manhattan, Kansas to Savannah, Georgia. Spent the weekend with Sue and her husband, Rob. And then we drove back home. I've been to Savannah. And so when Tina told me, I read the book Savannah growing up and I really want to go and visit this place, not full of wisdom, I said, well, I've already been there and there's nothing you need to see. (laughs) This was not one of my finer moments. Throughout the course of our almost 30 years together, she's told me several times, I really want to go to Savannah. I say to her, well, you know, I've been there. (laughs) A few years ago, we were driving down the East Coast and as we were traveling on the interstate, we got into Georgia and there was a sign for a turnoff to take you to Savannah. I said, oh, look, we could go on that road, go to Savannah. She said, we should. I said, we have to get to Florida. We don't have enough time, but you're awful close. So it's like being in Savannah. <laughs> Again, not my finest moment. So we talk all the time now about her desire to go to Savannah. And I tell her that that is a goal in our marriage. And if we actually go do it, then we won't have that goal anymore. And wouldn't that be disappointing? <laughs> So we haven't been to Savannah yet. We've been close. We've driven by it on the interstate. Tina has been close. But that's not good enough. It is not good enough for her. She wants to go all the way to Savannah. Now the Lord, because he has a sense of humor, had a way of driving home for me the point of how I was tormenting my wife. This happened just six years ago in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. I was there with a group of men from this church. We had ridden in and had plans to go to the China Wall on one day. Everybody that goes to the Bob Marshall wants to see the China Wall. I want to see the China Wall. I've not yet seen it, and here's why. When we saddled up our horses the morning that we were going to ride into the wall, I had an unfortunate incident with a ham sandwich and some mayonnaise. You do the math, you figure the whole thing out. So we got up, we started saddling the horses, and God let me know in no uncertain terms that I would not be making the trip. That's, that's just the best way to say it. Richard Kendall ended up staying in camp with me because I believe he was very benevolent and was afraid I was going to die. So he stayed there with me and we enjoyed the day or at least most of the day when I was available to enjoy that. And everybody else rode into the wall. They got back late that night and told us what a great trip it was and what an amazing experience it was. And to this day, I have only been close to the China Wall. I have not seen it. I've just been close. It's the same thing that Tina has experienced with Savannah. She's been close, but she has not experienced it. She saw the turnoff. I was close enough to ride in just one more day and we would have been there. But I haven't been all the way there yet. I've only been close. In Christianity, we do the exact same thing with people. We get them close to a restored relationship with Jesus Christ, but we don't take them all the way. And there are a lot of people that have not gone all the way in Jesus. So they have remained distant. They've come close, but they haven't gone all the way. In modern evangelism, we present roads and paths to people as they try to find their way into salvation. And those roads have helped a lot of people. Those paths have led a lot of people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But for a lot of other folks, all they have done is get them close. They haven't gone all the way. Now, here's what that path sounds like. We start them out on this road and we make the first stop where we help everybody understand that God had a plan for a relationship with all of mankind. 
He wanted to know us intimately. He wanted to walk through life with us, and that is true. All you have to do is go back to the book of Genesis to see it. That's what God wanted. Then we make the second stop along the path where we help people understand that our sin, my sin, your sin, makes that impossible, and it has separated us from the Lord. So there's this gap between us and God. Then we make the third step where we tell people that God closed that gap through the gift of His Son on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, we tell people that He did that so that we could receive forgiveness for our sins. And that's true. The blood of Jesus Christ that flowed from that cross covered our sins. Every sin you have ever committed or ever will was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's all very true. And then we tell people, because the Bible teaches it, that we need to repent of our sin and receive forgiveness for them. And that's true. And then we stop right there. So here's what that means. We stop at the foot of the cross, and we leave people there without taking them all the way through the story. And in order to do that, we have got to get them to Easter. We can't just leave them at the foot of the cross on Good Friday experiencing the wonderful grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, when He died for us. We have got to go all the way through so that we can help them see an empty tomb. Because the empty tomb is the linchpin of Christianity. It is the very thing that everything else hangs on. If we did not have an empty tomb, if we did not have a resurrected Lord, we have nothing. We have nothing. So if all you have done is made your way to the cross, you've come close, but you haven't gone all the way. You've come close, but you haven't experienced everything. I like the way the Apostle Paul says this. in The most pointed passage on the resurrection that we will ever find in Scripture. Here it is. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the 14th verse. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. That's it. It doesn't get any more plain than that. If Jesus is still in the grave, then all of this is for naught. If Jesus didn't come out of the grave, if the tomb is still sealed and it is not empty and his body is still there, then our faith is in vain. It is worthless. Absolutely worthless. A guy named Ross Clifford has a really good way of describing that. I like it a lot. Ross says, today we have relegated the resurrection to the functional role of a stamp on a letter, a postage stamp. He goes on to say, unless you are a philatelist, which is a stamp collector, you seldom ever give the stamp a second thought. Because it's not the stamp that matters, it's the letter inside the envelope that matters. That's what everybody wants to see. Now, in Ross's illustration of this, he would say that inside the letter should be the story of the resurrection. The stamp is just the official seal that means that the letter can be delivered. When we take the resurrection out of the envelope and we put the cross in the envelope and we say that that's the main message of Christianity and we use the resurrection as the postage stamp, we're saying that all the resurrection does is prove the authenticity of the cross. When in reality, when in reality, the letter is the resurrection. The letter is the empty tomb. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I want you to imagine that you have been on a journey that has led you to salvation. 
and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You have followed him all the way to the empty tomb, and and you have symbolized that in baptism. And Romans chapter 6 tells us that that's what baptism does for us. It helps us understand his death, burial, and resurrection. And on the backside of the baptism that you have experienced, you get to do all kinds of fun things like go out to dinner with your family and your friends and celebrate what just happened in your life. But then after that's over, you go home and, and happen to open up the mailbox and you find a letter there from God. And it's addressed just like any letter would be. This one was addressed to me. It says, Phil Allspaugh. Now, we know through the book of Revelation that the Lord in heaven has a new name for every one of us. So I, in my own imagination, thought maybe he would put my new name on the letter. So it says, Phil Allspaugh, the Duke. And then <laughs> it has our address, 3803 Kootenai River Road, Libby, Montana. And then it is addressed up in the top corner from God the Father, God the Son, through the leading of God the Spirit, 777 Gold Street, heaven. And on the other side, there's a postage stamp. Well, of course, you're going to be curious. You just received a letter from God, and it's addressed to you by name. So you're going to want to open that letter, aren't you? So picture what that letter might sound like. We could read it just like this. Dear Phil, I'm so happy you made the decision to accept my gift. I've been working behind you, in front of you, above you, and below you to make certain you would have this opportunity. Today is a good day for both of us. If you could hear the angels singing over your soul, it would move you beyond words, beyond tears. It would move you to your core. I love when they sing the song of salvation. You have found your way to the cross. Good. But I want you to know the journey is not over. The cross was my gift to you to take care of your sins. Trust me, they are covered. The price was paid in full. You need never worry about them causing us any trouble. My son died because I love you and I want to be with you. In fact, I want the best for you. So I have given you something else. Before I tell you what it is, let me share some thoughts with you. Life is going to be difficult. You will stumble through parts of it. There will be moments when you will wonder if you can go on. You can. There will be hurts, but they won't last unless you allow them to. You will experience loss. I will feel the pain with you. You will have regrets, but don't let them linger. They're not your friends. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what I really want to share with you on this most important day. I have overcome the world for you. I know you understand the cross and what it means, but do you understand the tomb? Do you know what it means to you? It means forgiveness, restoration, wholeness, empowerment, future hope, confidence, community, mission, It means victory. The tomb means you have found a new life, a new beginning, a fresh start. Tombs are a sign of death and destruction. They are the sign of an end. But this tomb, the one I want you to experience, is not sealed. This grave is open and empty. I'm not here and you aren't either. So walk now in a new life. Start fresh today. And when you need to come back here, do so. But don't stay. This is the message I want you to hear. You are free You are my child. I will always be with you. Signed, Abba Father. I love you, Abba Father. Wouldn't it be cool to get a letter like that from God? Wouldn't it be cool after a baptism and we saw one in our first service and we'll see a couple a little later on in this service. Wouldn't it be cool if those folks went home and found a letter just like that? 
Well, the problem is, if the message was only the cross, it would detail all of the sin of every person that they have ever experienced. If it was only the message of the cross of Jesus' sacrifice, you would never get to hear about the empty tomb where you are no longer held captive. You would never get to hear the message of being free. And the Bible uses just one word to sum up that whole idea, that whole doctrinal idea. It was found in the fourth chapter of Romans. Hopefully you saw it. Let's just take a look again. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, Who was delivered up for our trespasses, again, that's the cross, and raised for our justification. The word justification is the word applied to Easter. He was resurrected for our justification. Now that's a pretty big biblical churchy word, justification. At the heart of it, this is what it means. Justification means to declare something or someone righteous. That's it. To declare something or someone righteous. It is a legal term in New Testament practices. And here's what it means. When God looks at you prior to the grave, prior to Easter, all he can see is a ledger laid in front of him full of red ink detailing every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that I have ever committed. That's how God sees us. And that's what Job understood when he said, how can a man stand before God? How can a man be right before God when I know that this ledger is full of all this red ink? It is full of all of this sin. But justification says that when God looks at the ledger, he doesn't see your red ink. There's a second ledger at play, and it is Jesus's. There is no red ink in it. It's perfect because he was perfect. It's sinless because he was sinless. God takes that ledger of Jesus and lays it over the top of our ledger so that when he looks at you, all he sees is Jesus. Perfect, sinless. Isn't that cool? That's justification. That's how a man can be right, a woman can be right before God through justification. All God sees is what Jesus did for us. The doctrinal term for that is imputing. He imputed Jesus' righteousness to us so that he just sees Jesus. And therefore, we can stand before a holy God We can be right before God because our sin no longer matters. Our sin is gone. It's been imputed. Jesus' righteousness has been given to us. So Paul in Romans chapter 4 would actually detail it using Abraham's life in such a way that we could understand it. Here's what he says about Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Abraham was justified by grace, not the law. Abraham was justified by resurrection power, not by human effort. If you go back through Romans chapter 4, you'll break it down into those three parts. Then you're going to find the transition where Paul goes from talking just to the Jews to all of us. And the same three messages carry over. We are justified by faith, not by works. We are justified by grace, not by law, so that it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your power, your ability, your effort, because we are justified by resurrection power, not by human effort. The same three things apply to us. And once we understand justification, we can stand up. We're no longer gutted before God. 
We're no longer questioning like Job or Bildad or like so many of us throughout the years. We can stand before God and recognize that He has given us victory through the empty grave because we moved from here all the way through to here and both stops are equally important, but both stops are equally important. Don't just stay here because to stay here will leave you in a place that you will struggle forever to wrap your head around because all you're going to see over and over and over again is your sin. That's it. I like the way the writer of Hebrews helps us understand what happens when we remain only at the cross. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings or baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You see, if all we do is stay at the foot of the cross, looking at our sin over and over and over again, the writer of Hebrews says that every time you come back and you ask God for forgiveness, and there is a place, by the way, in sanctification and growing up in the Lord where we understand that we have to continually seek forgiveness for our sins because it helps us grow. But when we are coming back before the Lord, repenting of the same sins over and over and over again, believing that God must save us every time we do it, we are putting Jesus back on the cross. Every time. Every time. And as Ray would detail for us in the Passion of the Christ, would you really want to do that? Understanding that what he went through for us, would you want him to have to do that multiple times a day just to be able to save you? Well, justification says that he paid the penalty for all of our sins once for all so that we don't have to keep doing that. The writer of Hebrews says we have to grow up to a place where we can understand what the empty tomb brings to us. It brings justification. It brings something into our life that we cannot have without it. It brings the ability for a man or a woman to be right before God. So we have to figure out how to get our head around that. Lady turned on her radio. She was sitting in her living room late one night, led to a series of events that she still doesn't understand. This is what happened. When she turned on the radio, she heard a voice that she had never heard before, and she quickly discovered that it was the voice of a preacher, and that was unique because the station that she had turned to did not normally have preachers on. Preacher was seemingly talking about all kinds of random things with no central theme running through all of it. That was confusing to her, though she would later say she doesn't remember anything he said until he answered her question. She doesn't know what prompted her to call in to the radio show, but she did it. When they answered the phone, they put her right through to the preacher. He was just answering questions. That's why everything was so random. People could call in with any question they wanted to, and he would answer those questions out of Scripture and out of relationship with Jesus. So they put her right through to the preacher, and when he answered, there were no pleasantries, no introductions. She didn't waste any time. She just blurted out the question that was in her heart, and she didn't know why she did it. 
She still can't explain it. It just happened. But this was her question. She said to the preacher, Is there any sin so big that God cannot forgive it? Now the preacher heard that, and since he had been doing this for a while, he knew that when questions like that were asked, there is often a much deeper and more often than not darker story behind the question. So he just asked why she was asking. That's all it took for him to probe, and she started to lay out all the details behind the question. She said, I've never talked to anybody like this before. I don't know why I did it on the phone. I don't know why I chose to be so transparent with him. And even some of her friends were listening, and they recognized her voice in the story. But this is what she said. She said, I raised my son as a single mother. His father left us years ago. My son has some challenges that cause emotional outburst, huge fits of anger and rage. And oftentimes through the years when he's been in the middle of one of those outbursts, it has led me to react the same and fits of anger and rage. And I haven't wanted to, but that's been the course of our relationship. She said like any mother, she had wanted to raise her son to independence, but his challenges had made that difficult. But finally, they got to a point where he could live on his own and take care of his basic needs. So they found an apartment for him just down the road from her house, and he was living there. A couple weeks before she had called in, he had come over to his mother's to visit, and they'd had a fight about nothing of any significance. Most of their fights were like that. They were completely insignificant, but the battles were intense. And this one was particularly vicious. Before they had a chance to reconcile, he went back to his apartment and she closed the front door and stayed at home. But she was completely uneasy all night long. She couldn't sleep well at all. She knew that things needed to be taken care of. So first thing in the morning, she got up, got dressed, and drove over to her son's apartment. She knocked on the door and there was no answer. That was very unusual in and of itself because he didn't sleep well. He was always awake. When he didn't answer the door, that left her wondering what was happening. And so she had a key to his apartment. She unlocked the door and went in and found that he had taken his own life the night before. She was left with that vision, that thought. For the last two weeks, it had haunted her. They were never reconciled. So she said to the preacher again, is there any sin so big that God cannot forgive it? And she said, I'm asking not just for my son, but I'm asking for myself as well. The preacher thought for just a moment, it didn't take him very long at all, and he answered this way, the empty tomb assures us that we are not stuck in a moment we cannot get out of. The empty tomb assures us that we are not stuck in a moment that we cannot get out of. And he said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the forgiveness of our sins, all of them. That's justification. This lady was at the end of herself, worried not only for her own soul, but the soul of her son. Is there any sin so big that God cannot forgive it? And that preacher, with great wisdom, took her past the cross and all the way to the empty tomb so that she could find hope, so that she could find something to hang on to, so that she could find Jesus. If all he had done was take her to the cross and leave her at the foot of the cross, she would have lived the rest of her days totally afraid, unsure of what the outcome might be, paralyzed looking at her own ledger, 
And over and over and over again, putting Jesus back on the cross. And this wise preacher said, let me take you all the way through. I want you to see the resurrection so that you can find what it offers. And I want to show you what that is this morning. It is found in Romans chapter 5, the first verse. Just listen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and I'll add to that, because of the resurrection, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever heard anybody say to another person, you need to make your peace with God? You ever heard anybody say, oh, they made peace with God before they died? Most of us have heard things like that. The whole idea of making peace with God is such a goofy, messed up theology. I don't even know where to begin. You hear people say this on a regular basis as well. Well, I can't go to church because if I did, a lightning bolt would come through the roof and it would strike me. Or I can't go to church because the roof will come down on everybody that's there just because I'm there. When people make statements like that, they have not found peace with God. And based on their own merit, they never will. They never will. And this is what Paul was teaching in Romans chapter 5. When we understand justification that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God because of what He did. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what He has done for us. And that's the message of the empty tomb. When we discover it, We have peace with God. Job could have peace with God. Bildad could have peace with God. And billions of people since Job and Bildad could find the same thing because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb that we can all walk through and leave our sins there and quit carrying them around with us and stop going back to the cross. And we can be transformed into the person that God wants us to be through the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's resurrection power. That's what it does for us. And when we understand the word attached to it, justified, we know that we can stand before God without condemnation. But justified, we can be right before God. It's the message of Easter. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father, that's the message of Easter, and it's one that changes us, changes everything about us. One of the best parts about it is it wipes out guilt, it wipes out shame, it wipes out sin, and it leads us to a place where we want nothing more than to be who you want us to be and live the way you want us to live, to be your child. Lord, thank you for looking at us exactly like that, as our Father. Thank you for forgiveness and grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your death on the cross. But Lord, today, I want to thank you that the stone has been moved and the tomb is empty and we're not stuck there. And there are no moments in our life that we have to remain stuck in if we will bring them into that tomb and leave them with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for justification. It gives us great peace. In Jesus' name, amen.